If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. Book of Ephesians chapter 4. So we're doing something a little bit different here at Redeemer right now. Today, October 29th, 2017, churches around the world are celebrating um, an event that happened 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517 in the small town of Wittenberg, Germany, when a man named Martin Luther was used of God to, to start a recovery of the gospel of Jesus within his church. And we at Redeemer, while we are not Lutherans, we do appreciate this recovery of the gospel that's known as the Reformation. And we do see the gospel in the work of the Reformation. And in this particular statement that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And so, um, what we've done over the last five weeks is we've considered each of those points in turn. As we've, we're, we're trying to lay out our, our biblical gospel foundation. You know, the foundation is the strength of a structure. It's what gives it shape and what gives it undergirding and what holds it up. And in many ways, a building is only as good as its foundation. So we have taught that God's Word is our authority. God's Son, Jesus Christ, is our only Savior. God's grace brings us to faith that transforms who we are. And the, the purpose of all of that is that the name of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be exalted and honored and receive praise. But this morning, we're asking a different question. What do we do with our gospel foundation? What do we do with our gospel foundation? Near my parents' house in West Tennessee, there is this, I guess it was a house, I never got far enough to know, but there is this structure about five years ago that began with a bang. They, they leveled the field. They poured a foundation. They put some wooden studs on top of the foundation. They even shaped out the roof of the structure. And then they stopped. I think they even had the bricks piled beside the structure. But they stopped. They never added any walls. They never added the ceiling. They never added doors. They never added a window. They just stopped. And over time, the wood began to rot. Then it turned gray. And now it's falling down. And all that's left is a solid concrete foundation. So here's the question for us today. What does the Lord want us to do with the foundation of the gospel that He has given us in His Word? 
And I believe that what we see in the book of Ephesians in general, and in particular in Ephesians 4, is that the Lord is building His church. And the church is not a building. And the church is not a website with a statement of faith. And the church is not a slogan. And the church is not a tagline. And the church is not about dotting necessarily all the I's and all the T's. But the church are a people who know God through Christ, who have His Spirit dwelling within us, and we are being changed by God. The church is a people who know God, love God, walk with God, are transformed by God, and bear fruit for God. And so what do you do with your gospel foundation? You join us in building upon it by being people who know Christ, love Christ, repent of our sin, believe the gospel, follow Jesus, and bear fruit for His glory. That's what Ephesians 4 calls us to today. The great news is we don't do that in our own strength. We don't have to do that by our own initiative, but the God who saves transforms and the God who saves builds and the God who saves calls together a people to become more like him and to be a part of his work in the world and so our title for the sermon this morning is God's vision for his church and that's actually untrue this is a vision for God's church a vision for God's church because God has several purposes for his church God would desire that his church would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to talk about that in November. God would desire that his church would reach people who don't know Christ. But God would also desire that those who know Christ, who know the gospel, who have the foundation, would become a living people indwelt by the Holy Spirit who bear fruit for the glory of God. So before we look at Ephesians 4, let's think about it this way. Um, as I said, in, in 1517, this idea of the Protestant Reformation began. And, and what happened was there were arguments over what do we believe, statement of faith. How are we saved? How should the church be structured? What should the church look like? Who should be the leaders of the church and who shouldn't be the leaders of the church? But when those reformers got to that second generation, then they began to wrestle with the idea of, okay, we got the right structures, we got the right statement of faith, we got the right leadership, we got the right vision statement, we got the right direction, we got the right purpose. But is there something more for us? And from those conversations arose this phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. And it doesn't matter if you like Latin or not, it just sounds good. But the idea was, we've got our structures reformed, but God's purpose is for the people of the church 
to always be reforming their lives to the Word of God. For the people of the church to always be bearing fruit for the glory of God. And and the work of seeking to bear appropriate fruits of the gospel foundation within and among the people of God is our calling for this life as long as the as, lo, as long as the Lord leaves us here our name our statement of faith our theological convictions our banners our taglines our commitments are only as good as they produce holiness, and devotion to Jesus amongst the people of God. So I have two real concerns about the church at large and about us that drive us to look at this text today. First, I'm concerned about people in the South in general, and I guess I'm concerned about people in the North, I just don't live there. People here who just play Christianity. For whom the gospel and Jesus and the Bible and the church is just this thing that we do so that we can identify with our more moral heritage that we all grew up in. I'm concerned because that vision of the faith doesn't transform anyone. That vision of the faith doesn't give life and hope to anyone either. It's just all about how we perform. And most of you are like, amen, pastor. Let's rail on cultural Christianity. But I have a second concern. And this one hits way closer to home. My second concern is I don't want to be personally. And I don't want us to be as a people. A group of Christians that make our faith about our tribe, about our niche, about our particular brand of the faith. As in, the essence of Christianity is to have the right creed, the right statement, the right leaders that we follow, the right ideologies, the right commitments, the right taglines on banners, the right color sign outside that attracts people, or the right URL. And friends, if we're honest, we're all prone to that. We're prone to say, My understanding of the Bible is deeper than yours. My understanding of the Bible is more accurate than yours. My understanding of the Bible is better than yours. I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in the proper way. 
And I want to say that statements of faith matter. Taglines matter. Beliefs matter. Depth of the scripture matters. But those things only matter if they produce a people who are wholly devoted to God and filled with lives that seek to bear fruit for the glory of his name. And I'm just starting to feel the weight of it. Even here today as we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Even here today as we finish a Sunday school class where we've spent 12 weeks talking about the Reformation. Even here today where we celebrate our heritage and our forebears and what we believe. I am intimately aware that it is cool to be young, restless, and reformed. I'm intimately aware that it's cool in many circles to preach expositional sermons. I'm infinitely aware that it's cool to have elders in an elder structure in your church. I'm infinitely aware that it's cool to be a church plant without the baggage of tradition. I'm infinitely aware that everything except for my persona, my dress, and my personality are kind of cool and attractive in the church landscape right now. And I don't want to build a people that are just signing up for the flavor of the month because flavors of the month change, flavors of the month disappoint, and flavors of the month don't exalt Jesus. What exalts Jesus And yes, I'm putting all the application at the front. We'll get to the scripture in a minute. What exalts Jesus is people who are overcome by his grace, overcome by his mercy, overcome by his saving son, and radically transformed, and then pursue bearing fruit for him together. And that's the vision that I want us to pursue because I think that was the vision God had in mind when he sent his son to die to bear the burden of sin, to make forgiveness a reality, to make reconciliation with God a reality. I'm a little bit passionate this morning. And I've been told that when I get passionate, I look angry, like I want to kill you. This is not anger. This is passion. But I come with a fatherly love. I come with a fatherly spirit. I come, I think, being as biblical as I can that that I don't want to look back and say, We've misguided you. We've, We've sold you short of the totality of what the Lord has for you. We want to be like Jesus and bear the fruit in His church that He desires us to bear. So now, let's look at the Scripture and let's just see if I'm being accurate at all. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, which Ashlyn read for us. Um, Let's go back to verse 20 of chapter 3, if you're looking in the Bible. Just go up two verses. Because I I think it's important that we root chapter 4 in the gospel and in what Paul is saying. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what's Paul saying right there in verses 20 and 21? He's saying that God, particularly Christ, dwells with his people and is at work in his people. His power is with his people so that, verse 21, we will glorify him throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what's Paul's impulse here? That the church on the foundation of the gospel, trusting in Christ for salvation, not trying to earn anything, but trying to walk in his ways, would glorify God today, tomorrow, and forever. That seemed like a fair understanding of what Paul's getting at. How do we do that? That's the question. How do we do that? Look at verse 1. Actually, before we look at verse 1, is anyone as hot as me right now? Like, we got a heater in here? Uh, Kyle, could you go down a couple degrees? Hey, this is our first Sunday with the heat. These are building growing pains here. It works. That's a good thing. I'm I'm sweaty. Uh, They're just passion. There you go. Thank you, Ken. All right, so, so how do we do it? Look at verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's Paul saying? We pursue the glory of God by walking, and when the Scripture, particularly the New Testament, says walking, it means the totality of your life, by walking in a way that's consistent, worthy is the word, of the calling to be a child of God in Christ by the Spirit. So Paul's saying, let your living display the redeeming, restoring, transforming power of Christ in all things. Paul seems to believe that as we together seek to bear fruit and display a faith that is alive in our gatherings and in our scatterings, in all that we say and do, we will bring glory to Jesus. So he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now with those type of phrases, Paul is not just talking about our personal morality, but he's talking about our lives in Christ together. We bear fruit together together. 
We reform and amend our lives to the Word of God together with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So can you at least grant to me this morning from this passage that Paul seems to believe that one way the church glorifies Jesus is by walking, living lives that bear fruit and display the power of the grace of God at work in us. And here's the the underpinning of it. Here's the foundation of it. Verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's he saying? He's saying we can do this together because we are one body. We are in one spirit. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. We have one God. We have one Father over all. He's saying that Jesus has brought us together and we can walk together and glorify God by displaying lives consistent with his word together because God has done it and he's given it to us and he's now calling us to walk in it. And I believe that's where this vision goes then in verse 11 when Paul says, And God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." You see what he's saying? Not only are we one, but we've been given necessary leaders to guide us to this one goal. That we, all of us, would attain unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son, mature manhood, fullness of Christ, no longer tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. But that we together would speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So I want you to see this vision. This vision that Jesus died to build a people. A people who know Christ. A people who have the Spirit dwelling in them. And a people whose lives bear the marks of belonging to Jesus. And that means we would have faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. That means we would believe and experientially know that the Spirit dwells in us to walk with us and help us and empower us. And that believes that we would then 
purpose to make ourselves by grace, through faith, not to earn anything, but because of what the Lord has given us, be more like Jesus. God sent His Son to build a church that is consistently seeking to walk in the joy of salvation and to bear the fruit of a people who know and love God. For how long? For how long? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Anybody here want to say, got that one done? So this vision of being a people who've been radically saved and are now being radically transformed together for the glory of God is ours as long as God gives us life. Now, now, trust me, for the sake of time, verses 17 through 32 tell us what a transformed life looks like. Verses 17 through 32 tell us what a transformed life looks like. And a transformed life looks less and less like sin and more and more like trusting God and walking in His ways in this world. So our motive for wanting and praying for and pursuing a transformed life is not to earn God's favor or to earn salvation. Jesus purchased salvation. Jesus has given us God's favor. Our motive is not to get in a little better graces with God. Jesus has given us total acceptance, total forgiveness, and total reconciliation. Our motive is not to feel superior to people who are not like us because the gospel says we are broken apart from Christ and we are wretched apart from Christ. Our motive is to walk in the new way of life that God has given us. See if I can draw an example. I, I've been studying a little bit about human adoption, not the um, theological term adoption, but about human adoption. And, and one of the phenomenons that 
social scientists and counselors are running into is that um, children who were malnourished before adoption, even after their adoption, will hoard food. Because they, in their little tiny bodies, just can't believe that there'll always be food for them because they've never known that. And so often this causes a rift between adoptive parents and adoptive kids because we brought you home, we clothed you, you have this house, look, here's a pantry full of food, like we don't run out, like you will always be cared for and loved, but, but that child has to learn and be taught and be nurtured and be helped to believe that, that this mom and this dad will always provide for them and that there'll never be another day that they don't have food. And most of us who haven't experienced that are just like, whatever, man, I don't get that. But, but that's, that's reality. And compassion says, don't guilt the child, but love the child. And help the child. And bring the child forward to help them feel how loved they are. And feel how accepted they are. And feel how unconditional your commitment to them is. And feel that there's never going to be a day that, Lord willing, they will be hungry again unless we're hungry too. But, but we grow into that. And so I think the vision of Ephesians 4 is to want to grow into our adoption in Christ. To want to grow into the idea that God loves us and He'll never leave us. God accepts us no matter how wretched we are in Christ and He will never unaccept us. God has purposed by putting His Spirit in us to help us and nurture us, but we are having to learn to walk in that grace and as we walk in that grace our lives become more and more like what God always desired them to look like love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness self-control and so when did you notice how plural and corporate and multiple the language of Ephesians 4 was? Never once does it say, go into your home and figure this out, but it says, figure it out together. Never once does it say, take care of this so that Sunday morning will be peaceful. It says, figure it out together. Grow together. Work it out together. Be unified in Christ together. Forgive together. Be transformed together. The together part of the church is a grace of God to help us learn to walk as adopted children. And some of us need help learning that we indeed are sinful. Others of us need help learning that we indeed can be forgiven. Some of us need help learning that we're imperfect. Others of us need help learning that God sees us as if we never sinned. Some of us need help learning that we're abrasive. Others of us need help learning to speak the truth because it's okay to stand upon the truth. But the vision of Ephesians 4 is for a people who know God through Christ 
to live lives that honor His gift of salvation, that testify to the power of His Spirit who is at work in us to become more like what we already are, accepted, loved, forgiven children whom God eternally loves and promises that He'll never leave nor forsake. So the gospel foundation, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed in the scripture alone. That foundation is the fuel for this living. But God would call us to build upon the foundation. So church... Notice that in verse 32, Paul makes this connection for us. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See what he says there? Help one another, bear fruit together, Because what God has done for us in Christ is our ground and our motive and our calling. So a few takeaways for us this morning. Number one. We need Jesus. If God in Christ has not forgiven us, if His Spirit does not dwell in us, then we are unable to be transformed and we are unable to bear fruit. Christianity always flows through the cross of Jesus. Who am I? In Christ. Am I in Christ? Have I ever come to that place where I recognize that I am a sinner who needs a great Savior? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. That's who I am. I need a Savior to cleanse me. I need a Savior to purge away my sin. I need a Savior to help me. If we are in Christ, if we know the gospel, if we stand on this gospel foundation, what fruit does the grace of God produce in your life? Does it produce humility, dependence, love, and longing? Or does it produce some type of theological arrogance? What fruit does faith in Christ alone produce in your life? Does it produce an intellectual badge that makes me feel right and everyone else wrong? Or does it produce dependence upon Jesus in everything because He 
is the only thing I have. What fruit does confidence in the Scripture as our ultimate authority produce in our lives? Does it produce arrogance because we have all the answers? Or does it produce a yearning to know God as He has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in His Word? Because our foundation of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, is worthless if it doesn't drive us deep into the Scripture. And can I just give a little aside here? Let us remember that the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us to help us understand truth. So diving into the Scripture might be a challenge, but it is possible for all of us because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Does our theological vision of the glory of God as the motive of all things give us a nice slogan to separate ourselves from other Christians? Or does it captivate us to truly want God to be exalted in everything? Like when I look at what I'm going to watch on TV this afternoon, do I truly want Jesus to be exalted in that? When I consider whether or not to take a nap this afternoon, do I truly want Jesus to be exalted in that? When I consider how I'm going to relate to my life, to my wife and my kids, do I truly want Jesus to be exalted in that? When I consider how to relate to you and love you and shepherd you, do I truly want Jesus to be exalted in that? Or is the glory of God just a tagline that sounds good on paper? So if we're in Christ, and church, we are in Christ then let us be a people who recognize that that it's God's will and vision and purpose that we be transformed by His Spirit at work in us. So that leads to my final question. Who is there among us that knows your stuff well enough to challenge you, push you, teach you, exhort you, pray for you, encourage you, help you? Which then leads to the next question. To whom are you committed enough to lean in and teach, and exhort, and correct, and rebuke, and pray, and help, and serve. Because I don't believe the vision of Ephesians 4 is that the church is an island of people, thinking of a building, a group of studs just sticking up into the air, seeking to bear fruit for the glory of God, but that together we are built upon the foundation of the gospel 
to look like Jesus, to trust in Jesus, and to bear fruit for his name. This is God's purpose for us. So I have no interest in the reformed badge of courage. I have no interest in the reformed mantra for the sake of a mantra. I have no interest in being reformational because it's cool to be reformational. I have an interest in salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, because the Bible teaches that, because that is the gospel, and because that's how we know Christ, and he bears fruit in me and my family and this church. And that's what I want for us. Let's not settle for slogans. Let's not settle for what's cool. Let's not settle for what's appealing right now. Let's be a people who are radically riveted by Jesus and will sacrifice everything to obey and serve and honor and glorify his name. And see, that sounds like a great slogan, doesn't it? So go read Ephesians 4. Because Ephesians 4 says, that comes at great cost to me. That comes at me coming to the end of myself. That comes with me wanting Christ to change me and wanting Christ to change you. That comes with me setting aside my agenda and letting Jesus change it. That comes with me willing to sacrifice what might be best for me for what's best for others and what's best for you and your sanctification and your salvation and God's glory. I long for more of that experience of walking with Jesus in my life and in this church. And I'm just asking you to join me in making this commitment. Let's go there together. Let's go there together. If you're here today and you've never been to church, you've never followed Jesus, you've never become a Christian our invitation today is this know Christ be forgiven by him and join us on the journey perhaps you're here today and you're like what's church membership anyway like, like what's that all about commitment to a local church is joining us on the journey and so we would invite you to join us on the journey. Brothers and sisters, church family, those of us who are a part of Redeemer, Satan would love to divide us. He'd love to tear us apart. He'd love for us to forget about our calling to be like Jesus, and he would love for us to forget about our calling to love one another and serve one another and walk with one another. Let's prayerfully, by the Spirit, Resolve to walk in the ways of the Lord as laid out in Ephesians 4. Even when that comes at high cost to ourselves and to our comfort and to what we want most. So now, Father in heaven, I pray that you would come and work in your people and bear fruit in us, through us, 
for the glory of your name. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.